A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Lynn Freeman, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Parenting a child who's a bit different, and it's a pleasure to welcome back to Nine to Noon neuroscience educator and parenting commentator Nathan Wallace. We're going to look at the developmental milestones parents should be looking out for, when should a parent worry and seek help, and when should they take a deep breath and let the children find their own way. Nathan's in our Auckland studio. Kia ora, Nathan. Kia ora, how are you? I'm um, well, thank you. Great to have you back. There's going to be already interest in, in this subject. Let's look at milestones, yeah. mm-hmm. first of all. What yep. are some of the, the milestones that everybody, parents, plunket, you know, everybody is looking out for, let's say in the first year, year to two years, those, those key ones? Uh, they're all looking for slightly different things. I mean, a lot of your brain grows in the first couple of years, so a lot of those health professionals are just going to be measuring the, um, you know, the size of your skull to make sure that you're not failing to thrive, that your brain's growing. Um, Milestones-wise, a lot of the milestones parents get worried about aren't really there. You know, um, people get obsessed about walking, whereas you know, professionals aren't concerned about walking until 15 months. You know, if the baby's not walking at 14 months, that's fine. You never look at these things in isolation, though. So you don't go, oh, the baby's not moving and he's 14 months and so we're not concerned. If he's not moving, you're concerned. It's just that if he hasn't actually pulled himself up on the furniture yet at 14 months and started walking but is doing all the other pre-movement stuff, then we're not worried. So it's hard to just give one milestone and sort of make it simply that every child's supposed to do this by this age because the research only informs us about this imaginary average child. So there's always the bell curve. There's always a, a distribution of what's normal. And even within a family, I know within, uh, in my kind of extended family, you know, the, the first child spoke um, really early but couldn't be bothered walking. And right, the second yep. child uh, was up and motoring away really, yep. really uh, young. But yeah. well, it was really not that bothered chatting. So they yep. were entirely reversed within mm. the same family. And that's not uncommon, is it? No. And you'll see these trends too. I mean, um, you know, boys and girls develop differently. They don't conform to the stereotype. But you often see boys developing their motor skills well before their language. So the stereotype of the little girl that's quite articulate and then her brother doesn't seem quite as bright because at the same age, He's not quite as articulate. But if you watched his motor skills carefully, you'd see that this kid, the boy's got far more developed motor skills. And, you know, my grandson, I could see straight away motor skills was his. I think every kid's born with one of those domains that they're better at. And, you know, he was often taking off with motor skills really early on. Um, and yet my granddaughter, yeah, the op- you know, just conformed to the stereotypes, just language, language, language all the way. Uh, we, with talking, that, that, there's, a, there's a big um, bracket there, isn't there, for, for talking. Yep. You know, the, but that is something parents, you know, they just want to hear mum, 
dad. Mm. <laughs> it is a key. It. It's a key marker of your cognitive intelligence, your language. So I can see why parents are concerned about it. You know, there's nothing else that marks your cognitive development quite as closely as language. But it's worth parents knowing that um, we divide language into expressive and receptive language. So receptive language is the stuff you understand. We don't really measure the child's expressive language until after the age of two. Like um, a good statistic for parents to know is that 90% of your expressive language, how much the kid speaks, 90% of that will occur in a 10-month period, will turn up in a 10-month period, and that's between 26 and 36 months. So two months after you're two until you're three, in that 10-month period, that's when you'll really see the language bursting and the kid talking a lot and more and more complex sentences. Before that, we're measuring the receptive language, like you know, saying, oh, can you go up to Dad's bedroom and get my slippers from beside my bed and bring them to me? And when your kid you know, trots off and gets your slippers and brings them back to you, then they've got very good language. They're understanding it all. Yeah, it's just the way the brain works and the way you develop language is you develop your receptive language before your expressive language. I wonder if there is growing concern in the moment with this understanding about the autism spectrum and how broad mm. it is and with every yep. generation of course the number is expanding and yep. whether there's some and some families do seem, you know, it's within our family um, mm-hmm. it, it seems to come through more than in other families but I just get the yep. sense sometimes that that parents can be a little bit anxious and kind of looking for those signals that might indicate that there's the child might be on the spectrum somehow. Yeah, I think we're all a little bit anxious, first-time parents especially. You're concerned about, we know how important early intervention is and that the earlier you spot something and the earlier we intervene, the better the outcomes are. So that puts people a wee bit on hyper-arousal, looking for that stuff. Um, It's interesting, you know, are we getting more autism or are we just diagnosing more people and we accepted it more before? And if we are getting more, you know, what's driving it? The science isn't really there yet to be able to tell us exactly what autism is even. It's probably 20 different things that we're classifying as one. It's a very, tend- very broad spectrum, isn't it? Yeah. From dyslexia this, through um, to the other yeah, side, yeah. Yeah. You get this 40-10 pattern in the literature all the time. So you'll get something like um, you know, 40% of children on the autism spectrum have digestion issues. Whereas in the control group, only 10% have digestion issues. So that tells us that autism must be related somehow to digestion and the microflora in your stomach. But it doesn't conclusively say anything because 60% of the kids with autism don't have digestion issues and yet have autism. And 10% of the control group have digestion issues but don't have autism. But 40% still significant over 10%. So you tend to get that pattern all the time. That means that we know, like that example, microflora is an issue. We know testosterone is a key player in that. And we know oxytocin probably plays a role in autism. It's a lot to do with neural pruning and yeah, so we tend to get that pattern overall. We don't really give any answers. We don't know. You wanted to talk about social connectedness, and this is tied into what we were just talking about, actually. Mm-hmm. That is one of the indicators um, often, but not always, for uh, young ones on, this, on the autism spectrum. But the, yep. the child, whatever way, the child who doesn't seem to have any friends, how concerned should parents be? It's very age-dependent. So, you know, when you were first talking there, I was thinking about infants and us picking up that, you know, when we all... The literature talks about your serve and respond way that the brain develops. So you as a parent serve up a smile and the baby responds with a smile. Or better still, the baby serves up a smile and you respond back. You know, in the first few weeks of life, we're just going serve, 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 and the baby's not responding typically. Um, And then, you know, around four weeks, whenever it is, parents will argue over when it is. But at some stage, the baby smiles back and you get that response. And that gives you enthusiasm and you serve again. And that starts the whole nature of human development. Uh, Whereas the child with autism, you know, you get to six weeks and there's still no response. And eight weeks and there's still no response. And three months, there's still no response. So that's one of the key indicators, that lack of responsiveness. 
um, early on, not seem to be able to engage the baby. Um, for parents being concerned, again, it's very age dependent. I have lots of people say to me about their little boys that he doesn't seem to have that many friends at school and just has different friends every day. And then I find out he's six, and that's just completely normal for a six year old. Often girls have um, banded together in a little posse that they're going to, you know, stick with religiously. Um, you see that happening at four, five, and six, but it's quite normal for boys to play with whoever's up for it on the day. So what's your advice for parents? Say if we're talking about children, maybe that five or six age gap, should they mm-hmm. should they get involved? Should they try to manufacture friendships, you know, buddy up to other parents and, and get sleepovers, that kind of thing? Or simply yeah, some absolutely. kids, are, they should. Yep, 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 I think that's always helpful. Kids love social time. and the, It is just like a skill or an apprenticeship. And the more time you spend in it, the better you get at it. So if you create opportunities for sleepovers, especially where parents can be around to scaffold that. You know, um, to make sure that it's all nice and it's pro-social and the kids are having a good time and they're, when there is conflict that um, they're allowed to resolve it themselves or the support there to resolve it in a positive way. And that's all building to the kids' social skills. So yeah, if you're concerned about your kids' social skills, then create lots of those social opportunities. About reading and writing, we hear a lot about reading, don't we, and, and yep. the reluctance that there is for an awful lot of children. That's heartbreaking when you love books. You know, you really want your children to love them. But when should mm. you start to take note that reading and or writing aren't really coming together for a child? I think if they're under seven, then you shouldn't worry about it at all. Um, really, the brain, you know, that frontal cortex is the part that does reading and writing. Our whole education, you don't really get into that part centre stage development until about seven. Our whole education system is based on Piaget and his stage is a cognitive development and he talks about reaching the concrete operational stage between the ages of seven and eight, which is when you're ready for formalised literacy and numeracy. In Scandinavian countries, they don't really teach formalised literacy and numeracy under the age of seven. Kids are encouraged to, like in Scandinavia, they're encouraged to create their own language under seven because the importance is seen as their relationship to language rather than just producing the right results straight away. So yeah, under seven, I wouldn't worry about it at all. In between seven and eight, then I'm starting to notice, but like I say, it's typical for that stuff to kick in seven to eight. So um, yeah, I suppose... Again, it's not just, um, it's a, do they have a relationship with literacy? I wouldn't wait till seven and the kid doesn't know what the alphabet is. So I'd want to see lots of pre-literacy and pre-numeracy before that, and the kid might be um, using symbols in their own way. Uh, you know, like my um, nearly five-year-old grandson got a stick and drew in the bark a symbol that looked half like a question mark, half like a P, and it had a kuru in the centre of it. So it's in a symbol he made up entirely himself and said, right, that says poa, because that's my name. That's the one of the Māori words for grandfather. Um, so that tells me, yeah, he's got a relationship with using symbols. So I don't have to worry about whether he can write his name or whether he can spell the word the, because I can see he's developing that relationship. Is it, so, good to keep, is it good to keep reading, even if the child isn't that engaged? Is it good to keep yes. reading to them, like keeping books? It's more important to learn to love books than it is to learn to read books. In fact, you have to learn to love books first. So that was my reading program for my... I mean, my kids were all different, different stages, but the boys didn't show any interest in actually producing reading until somewhere between seven and eight. So before that, my reading homework for them was like reading them a chapter of Harry Potter every night. I want the kids to develop a love of literature and a love of books. So um, I do that by giving all the voices characters and by read, um, you know, giving all the characters voices and making it come alive for them. Yeah, just That's learn to love fun, it isn't first. It? Yeah, I it said, is. well, with my nieces and nephews, I was so sad when they were old enough to read to me. You know, right, <laughs> yeah. fun reading to the kids and oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They still love it. I still, you know, um, adults like being read to each other. 
that's quite a nice sort of romantic thing to do, actually, um, <laughs> reading to each other in bed. You know, that might be a whole other section we do now yeah, for an adult yeah. part of the programme. <laughs> um, just to, to wrap this up, if mm-hmm. you've got a parent or a caregiver decide that they, they need help or, or yep. guidance, mm-hmm. um, it's often really hard to know where to go where and to what go. to do. So what would your advice be to them? Um, I'd be lying if I said there was a nice clear system right in front of you to access help because it's one of the issues in this country is that it's hard to access help and to know what to do. So I suppose there's several things. You'd talk to your GP. They're often the ones that are there at the coalface for that and they'll often know the services to refer you on to. I think you can't underestimate um, a good chat room. I see lots of parents that are seeing their child's a bit quirky, a bit different. They embark on a path of trying to find out what that is. It's often got lots of dead ends and it's a struggle. And there's usually a parent who was in exactly the same situation as you one year before and is just one step ahead of you on that pathway. So go into those chat rooms and you have to sift through a bit of stuff. But you can often find people that are just one step ahead of you and that can save you a whole lot of time. So use the chat rooms that are available to you. Um, Talk to your GP. And just accept that every child is individual and different and and just try not to panic. And if you do have a quirky kid that's a bit different and is on the autism spectrum, most of the really interesting people in the world started out as really quirky kids. You know, like, um, you know, um, lots of the noticeable people in history um, we would now diagnose with either um, on the autism spectrum or with the ADHD spectrum. So, yeah, just celebrate what you've got. Everyone, no one's a mistake. Everyone's exactly as they're meant to be. If your child's quirky and has autism, it's not a mistake. That's who they're meant to be. Embrace that and work with it. Nathan Wallace, thank you for that. Thanks for talking to us today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.